Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. Well, welcome to the show today. My guest today is Dr. David N. Hempton. He's the dean of the Harvard Divinity School. He's a social historian and a prize-winning author with interest in religious and political culture, secularization and religion, as well as identity and conflict. Well, my interview with him today will cover some of his thoughts on leadership, as well as his thoughts on educating our future leaders, among other topics. I really think you're gonna to enjoy today's show. Well, Dave, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show today. You have a very unique role at Harvard. But perhaps first, tell us a bit about yourself. Talk about your journey to becoming the dean at Harvard. Rob, great to be here. Um, it's a long and complicated journey, but I'll, I'll make it as short as I can. So I grew up in uh, Belfast in Northern Ireland, um, came of age um, uh, as a young adult when the troubles broke out in Belfast. So it was, a, it was a rough time. I went to the local university there from 1970 to 74. There were, over a thousand people killed in Northern Ireland in that short time. So it was a violent and, and difficult um, city then. And um, I got, uh, to be honest, the outbreak of the Troubles took me uh, completely by surprise. And uh, I showed up in the history department. I got interested in religion and political culture and sectarianism and all of the above. And I, I then went on and did a PhD in uh, St. Andrews University in Scotland. And then I, I fortunately got a job as an academic and I worked as a, uh, as a junior professor um, in England and went back to Queen's University of Belfast, became chair of the history department there. Um, and that was an interesting time to um, you know, revise our curriculum and think of what, what kind of social function we should be having in a very divided society with almost equal numbers of Catholics and Protestant students. Um, so I was happily doing my bit at uh, Queen's University in Belfast, and, and then um, a phone call came through from uh, Boston University, asked if I was interested in coming to the United States, which I didn't think I would be, but I did. Uh, so in a kind of mid-career uh, um, uh, or midlife crisis, however you think about it, uh, we uh, as a family came to the United States. I came to Boston University in 1998 to the university professors program there, which is a fun place to be, some wonderful scholars. And then this uh, position came up at Harvard, mm -hmm. a newly endowed chair in uh, evangelical theological studies. And um, I got the job and, um, and then was there just a few years when I became dean. So I've been dean now for almost eight years and for some uh, rather amazing reason, I now find myself as the longest serving dean at Harvard, which is a, um, I don't know how that happened, but, um, uh, so anyway, that's how I, I came to be Dean of the Divinity School. Maybe just say a little bit about the Divinity School, because um, uh, it's, it's an unusual place. It's a, uh, it was founded uh, over 200 years ago, so it just celebrated our 200th birthday. So it's non-sectarian, mm -hmm. non-denominational, so we don't have any kind of um, 
you know, financial or power relationship with, with any uh, religious tradition. Uh, we have about almost 400 students from over 30 different religious traditions, including all the world's major religious traditions, and from all over the United States and from all over the world. So it's a very eclectic and diverse place, both in the student body and in the faculty. We have at least two faculty members in uh, all of the world's major religious traditions. Um, so it's a very, um, I mean, probably about half of our students and half of our faculty are in some Christian tradition, uh, Catholic or varieties of Protestantism, but it is a, a, a really a multi-faith um, uh, uh, school environment, uh, probably the most um, eclectic uh, environment of any divinity school in the United States. And you know, we have a couple of centers that have been very influential in shaping the school. One is the Center for the Study of World Religions, which was formed there you know, over 60 years ago. And it has given us a, 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 a world religions focus. And then the other is the um, Women's Studies and Religions Program. So we uh, each year invite five uh, scholars to come as research associates to research and write books on women and religion. So there have been over 100 women have come to that program. And it's really, um, I think, changed the landscape in the United States and some other parts of the world around women uh, and religion, um, uh, made it into a really serious form of scholarship um, and has really changed the landscape of all um, uh, scholarship in, in religion. So those two centers have made an enormous impact on our school and, and, and wider afield. One of your opportunities in your role as dean there at Harvard is to inspire, to equip, and to lead a large contingent of future leaders, many of whom will go into the nonprofit sector, as my guess, whether that be faith-based or not. So in your opinion, what are the three key things that you hope everyone who leaves Harvard integrates into the work-life nonprofit service after graduation? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, maybe just one preliminary and just say that, you know, our, um, a, about a quarter of our students go into ministry of some form, um, uh, Christian, Buddhist, and we're also now got a Muslim ministry program. Um, another quarter, or maybe slightly more, go into academic life. They come to Harvard to do a master's and they do a PhD and then they go out into universities and colleges or high schools. But the great bulk of our students um, uh, do come in with um, perhaps not very clear vocational aspirations, um, and over the you know over time they um, they exit into nonprofits, into careers as um, you know we've got quite a lot of writers, you know some budding film producers, some um, uh, poets. Um, um, some people bound for chaplaincies of all kinds, <clears throat> which is a growing field. But in terms of what you know, I'd like all of our students to leave with, it's a, it's a great question. Maybe the, the three things I might point to would be, first, that our students would have a deeper understanding and a greater respect for world religious traditions. Um, so it is a kind of place where uh, there's no default position. Um, everybody comes, uh, you know, from uh, some minority that they're they're not the uh, the dominant uh, force in the school. So learning to adjust to one another and um, and understanding uh, different religious traditions. I mean, we insist that our students do um, um, 
at least some work in another religious tradition other than their own, so that they um, uh, you know, can deepen their understanding and respect. So I think that's the, the first thing. Um, a second thing is that I do think our students uh, come to the Harvard Divinity School. They don't come to make money or, you know, they, they, you know it, 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 they're not going into mostly into high paid jobs. So, um, uh, so they go out, they come into us often with some sense of service or some concern about human flourishing or about, um, you know, making the world a better place. Those are qualities that we like to see nourished and developed and expanded and um, and fulfills so that our students um, do leave with a, a greater sense of purpose, you know, than just, you know, they're not headed to Wall Street, they're not headed to big consulting uh, uh, companies. Um, so we really are trying to help our students form some kind of sustained social engagement that um, uh, uh, that they can take with them. So those would be the things that um, we, we most like to see in our students. And of course, what I would say is that our students teach us. Um, um, you know, the, the Divinity School has changed dramatically over the past 50 years, often under uh, student leadership. Uh, so it's not at all one way. We're not the, the, the teachers and they the learners. We're all learning in that environment. Well, I really like your approach to uh, what you want every student to leave Harvard with. Now, we have talked quite a bit about the millennial generation on the show. In fact, studies have shown that for many in the millennial generation, they are leaving the institutional church in really large numbers. Now, however, many of these same millennials are supporting and getting involved with nonprofit organizations, which is interesting. Do you see this trend uh, in regards to these millennials that go through Harvard, uh, perhaps who are replacing church involvement with nonprofit involvement? And if so, why is this happening, in your opinion? And what is Harvard doing to address this? You're correct. You know, I think the millennial generation and, and subsequent ones are, you know, parting company with organized institutional religion in considerable numbers. Um, there's now, in that generation group you've mentioned, the millennials, over a third describe themselves as uh, nuns or unaffiliated to any religious tradition. And the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, um, uh, is the fastest growing segment, uh, according to the Pew uh, surveys on religious practice in the United States. So that um, about, um, uh, you know, close to a quarter now of, of Americans uh, choose that as their uh, identification label. So why is that? Um, um, there, there's a lot of factors uh, going on there. One is, I think, a disenchantment with institutional religion. It hasn't been a great 20 years for churches, to be honest. I mean, all kinds of uh, um, scandals around you know, sexual abuse and, and financial mismanagements and um, and there's there's a, there's a kind of boredom factor that you know many churches look as if they're places that have been around a very long time and s seem somewhat out of touch with you know young generation um, uh, priorities. So the nuns are are, are are a growing sector. So we fortunately had two very very talented students, um, uh, Angie Thurston and Casper uh, Turkile. Who um, um, wanted to make this their study? You know what is going on here, and they did that. Uh, they got some support from the Divinity School, and they stayed on after they graduated. And they devoted themselves to um, uh, thinking hard about the nouns. And they have, you know, produced literature around um, 
ways of gathering, you know, how we gather, care of souls. And what they've come up with is that um, for the millennials, um, that many of the things that churches do are, are, are things that they're interested in for their social function, minus the theological dogma, as they might say. So things like, you know, fellowship meals or grief counseling or, or um, you know, mutual support for one another or rituals of rites of passage or, um, or gatherings to, um, you know, share activities. So are building community. So in a way, um, um, there's a, you know, there's shared social functions. But more deeply than that, I think what they discovered is that there's a real deep... Uh, hunger also for you know meaning and purpose in life, and um, and meditation and reflection, and um, um, and soul care and all of these things. So, in a way, what we've discovered. I mean, uh, Angie and Casper put on some conferences for the nuns at Harvard Divinity School, and what we found is that um, many of these people, you know, have genuine spiritual. Interests and uh, and uh, and passions, and also a desire to build communities of mutual support. So, in a way, um, it's almost a kind of um, you know you know this phrase of spiritual but not religious, or or at least somewhat detached from um, you know the institutions. I mean, I think there is in that generation just a an impatience with institutions of all kinds. I mean, sociologists tell us that it's not just churches that are suffering, but uh, all kinds of um, community organizations that are less strong now than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. Hey everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Show. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you were aware of a whole group of other interviews with fascinating guests that I've previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org, and there you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I think you'll really enjoy those interviews. We want to give you more content, and we'd like to get that information to you. And all you have to do is give us your email. When you go to that website, you can put your email address in that first box you'll see on the front page, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. In addition to some great content, you'll see the latest uh, podcast shows that will be actually sent right to your inbox. And that way you'll never miss any of the great content on this show. The other thing I'll mention to you is if you have questions or comments or you'd like to be on the show, do not hesitate to email me. I'd love to hear from you. Just do that through our website, my email, rob at ccofpc.org. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. We value our partners who make our world better and make giving a whole lot easier, like our partner, Karma Payments. Karma Payments could help increase donations to your nonprofit by as high as 600%. Maximize financial gifts with the power of Instant Karma, a new cashless giving device. They accept mobile pay and all major cards anytime, anywhere. Donors simply select their generous amount and tap, dip, or swipe for instant philanthropy. Securely manage contributions with top-notch technology, low-cost rates, and all-inclusive payment solutions. Instant Karma is handheld-sized, portable, weatherproof, and may be purchased lease monthly or rented for a one-time event. So support your costs, boost giving, and create meaningful donor experiences this new decade. Learn how at karmapayments.com.
Well, and you've kind of touched on this a bit, but as you scan the religious and cultural landscape, what are some emerging expressions of faith and communities of faith that perhaps are outside the institutional church, but that are powerful expressions of faith being lived out in a community context? Could you talk about that a bit? Thanks for that question. I mean, one thing I would say, you know, as a preliminary is that I do think that Many churches are, are themselves aware of these issues and, and are themselves creatively reinventing themselves. So it's not as if the institutional churches are all completely stuck in some, you know, sand with their heads down like ostriches. But um, so there's a lot of vibrant work going on in religious congregations around the country. But more specifically, answering your question, um, I mean, there, there's a bunch of things. I, I do think that this generation are interested in um, issues around climate change, environmental sustainability, are very concerned about um, LGBTQ rights, and, and um, um, uh, they have concerns about um, nuclear issues, they have concerns about um, uh, health and sustainability. So, um, so often, you know, I found there are creative groups that, you know, like have farm churches or, 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 or meet under a health, around a healthy meal, or um, some, you know, use uh, technology, you know, so you have, um, you know, internet connections and, and, and you know, uh, virtual churches. And um, you also, I mean, I had a student who did this wonderful paper on, um, um, the Evolving Faith Conference at the University of Denver just a few months ago, and where you know several thousand, mostly women, came together to, you know, these are women with, you know, have come out of faith traditions, maybe a little burnt by them, um, maybe have suffered from some kind of, um, you know, um, uh, not being treated seriously or some kind of, you know, authoritarian patriarchal leadership or whatever it might happen to be. Um, or have been a little put off by a certain kind of trend, and especially in conservative evangelical or Catholic churches. And, and these women, you know, getting together um, uh, and think of their, thinking of their faith as evolving and what does that mean, and, and often with a new generation of leaders and, and, and um, still interested in worship and service and community and faith and meditation and prayer but figuring out new and different ways and ways in which women themselves can be um, important leaders and, and um, participants. So I think um, in all of these, I mean, what I found as a historian, of, of a social historian of religion, is that um, this is quite common in the history of Christianity, that as society and culture change, churches or religious expression, maybe a better way of putting it, um, change with it um, so that there's often new things being and at first they seem quite radical and um, I mean I did all my early uh, PhD work for example on the rise of Methodism as a religious tradition in the 18th century which um, in the context of um, Western Europe which had established churches uh, Methodism was a new form of voluntary religion you know you weren't born into it you chose it you were given a membership ticket you could leave it freely um, and it, it, was a, it was a new way of organizing religion for new times. Um, and then it became the fastest growing religious tradition in, um, uh, in the United States before the Civil War. Um, so that I have found historically that 
these things happen all the time. So it's not something I think to be afraid of or that it's necessarily a bad thing. Um, uh, there will be a time of shakedown and, and so on. But uh, many of the leaders of the, um, especially you know, some of the people I've mentioned, you know, who have been thinking hard about the nuns and, um, uh, you know, have got uh, uh, immense gifts and talents and are, are, are setting themselves to construct something meaningful and purposeful for communities that, um, that are uh, by no means completely secular. Thank you for that. You know, it's always fascinating to hear your perspective on these things. And related to that previous question, in all of your travels and interactions with nonprofit and faith leaders throughout the country, let alone the world, uh, give us a couple of examples of healthy and vibrant nonprofit organizations. Now, they may be faith communities or, or perhaps they're just service-oriented humanitarian nonprofits. In your opinion, what sets these organizations apart? Uh, specifically, what are the leadership skills that set apart healthy nonprofit leaders from others? Well, I think I have a special admiration for um, uh, the, the kind of work that's done in the building I'm in right now. You know, the uh, uh, Christian Center at Park City that that have a um, you know a kind of social justice concern for um, uh, people who need a helping hand um, uh, for a whole variety of reasons. So it's something that's earthed in communities in real needs. Um, an organization that um, uh, my wife and I have been associated with now for 20 years or more um, uh, called ASHA, uh, which works in the slums of Delhi. And this was started by um, an, an Indian a pediatrician named Kiran Martin um, 25 years ago during a cholera epidemic in the slums. And the main aim at the start was to produce um, you know, better health outcomes in the slums, so having clean water, proper sanitation, a decent shelter. Um, then, you know, moved on from that to um, having some educational and economic functions, you know, so trying to get some of these slum kids um, a decent education and into, uh, even if possible, into tertiary education, which they've managed to do. Um, I spoke at actually one of the first graduating classes of the slum kids in Delhi, which was a really powerful occasion. Um, and then they also have, you know, little microfinance dimensions to this. But much of it is predicated around the, the training of women leaders, you know, who are often, uh, you know, maybe not literate or barely literate, but are given, you know, some basic medical training and they take care of, you know, slum alleyways. And they've done an amazing job in, um, um, you know, their health outcomes are now, you know, comparable with the Indian uh, average. They've seen, um, you know, dozens of these kids get into higher education. And uh, recently, Kieran, you know, I've talked to a lot about this, actually wrote a little booklet on her values. You know, what, 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 what 10 values would you choose as wrapping your arms around this organization and that everyone can buy into? And given that they're you know, that there are Christians, Hindus, and Muslims involved in this, both in the staff and in the, the slum sites. Um, and things like, you know, compassion or generosity or, um, you know, one for her is the power of touch and, um, um, and another is heroism and another is simplicity. Um, so these values that, are, you know, resonate with the human spirit and make a difference in people's lives. So... 
The ASHA model has been a very powerful one. So I tend to like models that, um, like the Salvation Army or Habitat for Humanity or Partners in Health or whatever, these nonprofits that really roll their sleeves up and do things in, um, in difficult places. We had an interesting partnership recently, which I think is a good example of how faith traditions and, and non-profits uh, can work together. As, um, uh, you know, we had a donor who was, who was interested in the er eradication of malaria, which is a, a disease now, which is you know, one of the um, most um, disastrous diseases in human history in terms of mortality rates. And it's still, um, still a big problem in sub-Saharan Africa. It's been eliminated in some parts of the world. But we now have the scientific knowledge to eradicate malaria if we have the will and the human resources to do it. So we convened a conference at the, at the Divinity School with um, scientists and public health professionals from the Chan School of Public Health at Harvard with a, a traveling group of um, sub-Saharan Anglican bishops. Um, mm. um, um, and the main point of this is that even organizations like the World Health Organization don't have really good chains of command and communications beyond major cities. So if you really want to get a health message out, you know, to, um, um, you know, rural communities in parts of Africa or Asia, um, faith communities are often the best way to do it. They're organized there, they're respected. So this was an exciting possibility of how, you know, health outcomes could be turned around by a partnership. So in terms of, you know, the qualities of um, <clears throat> leadership, I mean, I do think that we've probably alluded to this a lot already, you know, people who have a sense of compassion, people who care about um, uh, other human beings, people who want to make a difference, people who are good at building teams, um, people who are creative and innovative. You know, I find even just walk, walking around this center to be it's fantastically creative, you know, and how you bring, um, you know, different population segments together, how you reallocate resources, how people have their needs met in a way that respects their dignity and, and their autonomy as, as humans and uh, treated with, you know, full uh, respect. Um, these, are the, uh, uh, these are things that I think at the Divinity School we try hard to, to model or to replicate, um, not always perfectly, obviously, but, um, but these are the values that I think we, we believe in. Well, my guest again today has been Dr. David N. Hempton, Dean of the Harvard Divinity School. He's a social historian and prize-winning author with interest in religious and political culture, secularization and religion, as well as identity and conflict. David, this has been a fascinating conversation. I have a feeling that people may want to know more about you. Maybe they're interested in going to Harvard. Um, so how can people find out a little bit more about Harvard Divinity School, first of all, and how can they find out more about you? Well, the Harvard Divinity School is the easiest bet. I, I, um, um, so um, uh, the Divinity School has a wonderful website, um, which um, I just uh, encourage people to go visit. You can just go visit Harvard University, and then you get to schools. And the Divinity, schools, uh, the Divinity School is one of the graduate schools at Harvard. And when you go into that website, it's a kind of treasure trove of what the school does. And um, some things maybe to pay particular attention to is that we do have some publications that people might be interested in. We have a, um, a Harvard Divinity School Bulletin, which is a prize-winning magazine that 
um, that has articles on all of the issues we've talked about today, the religious nouns or, or you know, issues like, you know, how to face up to, de- to death without a faith tradition or, you know, a whole bunch of things that... Um, um, interesting, you know, in like anti-Semitism, why is it on the rise? How do we think about it? How do we combat it? Um, um, and then under various categories, you know, we put on a lot of events, you know, conferences, workshops, panels, uh, addresses, uh, talks, often from world-renowned figures who come and uh, give us their wisdom. Um, most of these are recorded. Many of them are available on the website, so you can uh, tune into them, um, and you know if there are things that you know people would like to know more about the Divinity School, you know just write to our communications team and we can supply more information. But the website is the best place, really, to start, um, and um, and then think about our publications and and maybe think about coming there. Um, <clears throat> we've tried in um, uh, in recent years to be more outward looking um, uh, in the school. So we have a, um, we're planning a new master's degree in religion and public life. We've the last couple of years, um, we've had a, um, an executive education, continuing education program in the summer uh, where people can come and spend a week in the Divinity School and get a real sample of what we do there. We call it making change. Um, and um, you know, some of our best teachers and um, some of our best facilities, people get an introduction to Harvard, to the libraries, to the facilities, uh, to the big questions of the day. So that's a great thing to think about. Um, you know, it's only a week of someone's life. And, and, um, uh, and we've had, you know, the first two or three years we've had this, we've had wonderful feedback. Uh, you know, people really appreciate the curriculum that was made available to them. So those are ways that you can find out a little bit more about the, the Divinity School. Well, one more time, David, thank you so much for being on the show, and thanks for all you're doing and the leadership you're providing through the Harvard Divinity School. Well, Rob, it's been a great pleasure, and it's a, been a great pleasure, I can honestly say, um, uh, being introduced to the um, uh, Christian Center at Park City. What wonderful work you're doing here, and the, the building, the spaces, the concepts, the way people are treated, it's just fantastic. So. Um, it's an honor for me to be uh, a visitor here. Thank you. I want to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better. Keep making your world better.